This is the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Find us over at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. I'm a country boy with the soft side. My heart wanders up north to the hillside. Now I've never made anyone quite as beautiful as you. I'm your host, Rudy Gets It. I'm here to inspire you to get out on the trail. You putting in two-mile hikes, five-mile hikes? Are you still on the couch? Come on, let's go on a backpacking trip. I'm going to introduce you to some folks that have done that and a whole lot more. From a Rudy, and I didn't know how to pronounce the last name, and I, I said, I don't think I went to school with a guy, and, and I almost reported it as spam. And then almost a year later, I came across Cascade Hiker Podcast, and I said, oh, my kind of guy. Yeah, I'll be your friend. And I have been a great fan ever since. That was pretty funny. I was definitely, uh, I definitely <laughs> was stalking him. Um, <laughs> I I grew up uh, in Granite Falls, and my dad was a. It just inspired me to get hiking and whatnot. And uh, we we had a view of Pilchuck and, and Three Fingers from our house, and it was like everything in Everett and Granite Falls and Marysville is called Pilchuck this and Pilchuck that. But we all look at three fingers and say, wow, these mountains are amazing around here. And so for, you know, that was, that was why when I was 10 years old, when the book came out in 1987 and it, it was just like, I fell in love with this book and I don't even know this, who this guy is. And, and, uh, so anyway, that was kind of the background of the story. when I found him on Facebook, stalking him and, uh, <laughs> sent him a friend, a friend request there. So, uh, for those of you, first of all, before we really get into this, um, I don't know where everybody is, but just maybe either stand up or raise your hand if you've been on the podcast before as a guest. We got Joan and Jim, Gary and Jim, Bigfoot Jim. Shannon's been on like four or five times back there, Shannon Cunningham, <laughs> leader. So anyway, and yeah, so I just want to say thanks. It's, it's fun to get the kind of the community together and stuff. And, um, and for those of you that have been to the show before, uh, I see a lot of familiar faces. Thanks for coming out again. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we don't disappoint. Let me get my notes out here before we get started. No pressure. All right. Well, it, it's funny because I usually delete all my notes on my phone after because I'm like, oh, I, I've done like 160 interviews uh, uh, on the podcast. So there's, it's, it's, it's a mix. Some of them are more local. Some of them are kind of nationwide or even worldwide. Uh, so I'll, I'll delete them and stuff. So it was really uh, just a blessing when all of a sudden I looked down at my phone. I'm like, I still have the original notes from when I interviewed Malcolm Bates at uh, in, in Snohomish a while back, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. So I got those plus some, some questions we came up together with. First of all, let's talk about the book. How did the book come to be? Um, I, when I first started teaching in Snohomish, I, I was taking a college course about women in the state of Washington, and I, I, couldn't, I had to write an essay about a, 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 a woman who had had an impact. And... Um, I came across the name, well, I think, oh, God. You see, this is, <laughs> I can't remember anything anymore. But I, let's. <laughs> Good thing you wrote a book. <laughs> oh, I, I, I just finished rereading the book for the first time in 30-plus years last night, and I said, I said that? I interviewed them? Yeah, I needed that. But anyway, I, um, 
I don't know whether I wrote a letter to Harold Engels because I thought it would be neat. Were there were there some women? You didn't friend him on Facebook. <laughs> I did not, <laughs> uh, and and I I think I wrote him a letter. Uh, did he know of any women who might uh, be subjects for an essay like this? And he. Uh, mentioned a woman named Lurleen Simpson. And my friend Jim, who's been my hiking buddy for 55 years or so, um, we went down to visit this woman who had been, during the war, a lookout on Mount Pugh. And she was just uh, amazing. And as a result of that, uh, I formed a connection uh, uh, that developed into a friendship with Harold Ingalls. The next time I met him um, at White Pass, uh, he and uh, Rick McGuire were doing a 20-mile day hike, and he was 78. Uh, put me to shame. And uh, and at and after climbing Three Fingers, uh, I just fell in love with this cabin that sat on the edge of the civilized world and the wilderness the wildest country you could imagine on the other side. And, and I realized, well, Harold Ingalls is still alive. I wonder if any of these other lookouts uh, are still alive. And doggone it, I should write a book. Nobody else is going to. Uh, and, uh, and so <laughs> that's sort of where it started. And I got in touch with Harold. Uh, I wrote a letter to Harry Tucker. Uh, hoping that he might respond. I think he didn't answer the letter. He just drove down to my house, and, and he was so enthusiastic, and everybody was, really. So. Yeah, w when you talk about kind of those things, it reminded me when I read the book. How many of you guys have read the book? So okay. yeah, a, a few, few of you out there. Um, it's hard to get a copy of the book. Uh, it really is. And, and so I remember the, the part of the book that, that really first inspired me when I was uh, probably a sophomore in high school, I hiked from Stevens Pass to, uh, to, to well, I guess it was Kennedy Hot Springs at the time. And it really just, I was like with my dad, and, and we went, I think it took us four days or five days or something like that. Well, his book starts out, for those of you who read it, that he ran that in one day, basically, to White Pass and, and out, uh, out the North Fork Sox. So in 1987, I don't remember a whole lot of people doing that kind of stuff. Um, so that really just kind of intrigued me. Just like, who, who is this guy that's running all this distance? Took my dad and I basically four days to do. Yeah. <laughs> and so I would imagine he was a little bit impressed with you as well when you met Harold Engels. Well, Harold was so gracious. And he was, you know, I mean, he used to do 40-mile day hikes. And so it was just fairly small potatoes for him. But, um, and um, I was impressed with myself. But it, when I met him, <laughs> I thought I was going to die. I had 10 miles uh, to get to Kennedy Hot Springs, and I was just beat. But he was so, I don't know whether I got an infusion of his spirit or not, but I did make it. And, and once you got to Red Pass, of course, it was all downhill from there. Thank God gravity took me the last 10 miles. Yeah. My friend Jim, uh, I met uh, some people on the trail that day when I was thinking of bailing because um, I just felt awful. And I met some a couple of guys, uh, and they sat down. We talked for a while, and they went off south. I went north, and, oh, God, it was about a year later. Jim was at his bank, and he was talking to a customer, and the guy said, uh, you know, 
I saw the strangest thing last summer. There was this guy running from Stevens Pass to Kennedy Hot Springs. That's an what an idiotic thing to do. And Jim <laughs> says, yeah, that's <laughs> my friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, you know, kind of, kind of put us – I would imagine there's a few of us, those who read the book, and just kind of kind of think about this town. It's really interesting interviewing out here in Darrington. We specifically picked this location, uh, not only because of the, the Darrington Outdoor Club, uh, but because of the fact that this is basically almost the history of, uh, uh, sort of a history portion of Darrington itself. And if you can imagine these roads and buildings, most of them not being here. And can you kind of set an example of how – people got around back then as far as the Forest Service? Well, I, I think uh, by and large, uh, they got around the district on trails, you know, uh, because the roads didn't necessarily extend as far as they do today. Um, and uh, so they were building amazing, uh, ex extensive, uh, you know, a series of trails that crisscrossed the district because that frankly, was the fastest way to get anywhere they needed to get in the district, especially, you know, if there were fires or getting up you know, when they built the lookouts. I think it was mostly by trail, you know, because a lot of the logging was just, I think, being done down in the valley. It's still at this point, you know, they weren't going high into the mountains. Now, isn't that what they were doing then uh, when they first thought of the idea of getting to the top of Mount Three Fingers? Well, um amazing they were um building a trail i think um that would go up boulder creek to tufso pass and then down canyon creek so that they could connect with verlot um and harold and harry badal um decided that you know maybe we should take a look at three fingers this was 1929 and so from tufso pass they put a they grabbed a couple of sandwiches, put them in their back pockets. Uh, they had a candle lantern that he made out of coffee can, and you'd stick a candle in it, and that was put it on your head, <laughs> and uh, off they went. There was no trail from Tupso Pass. They, uh, uh, Indi uh, I mean, uh, Harold had, uh, no, Harold, Harry Badal was the son of Jim Badal, and his mother, Susan, was the daughter of a uh, Sauk uh, tribal chieftain, the last one perhaps, I'm not sure about that. And they lived way up the Mount Loop in a little town, I mean a little enclave called Badal. And uh, so Harry, I mean Harry knew these woods like no other. And off they went. And by late afternoon they were standing, this is end of September 1929, they're standing just below the rock summit of the South Peak, and uh, it started to snow. Uh, but they thought, you know, I think we can do this, and do you want to climb? They had maybe 20 feet to get to the top, uh, but Harold decided, no, I don't, I, I didn't like, he didn't like the idea of the snow. So, but instead of backtracking, because they, uh, the trail crew was camped down at Tupso Pass, they decided to go down, drop down into Squire Creek, and then head back into Darrington that way. When it got dark, they realized the only way they would know where they were was to walk straight down Squire Creek, 
which is what they did. And they would, they, at times, they were up to their necks in Squire Creek with their candle lanterns <laughs> on their heads. And um, they got home at midnight. Harry went to the local hotel where he had a room. Uh, Harold walked on back down to his house the next morning. They both showed up and surprised the heck out of the crew at Tupso Pass. They'd made this grand circuit and decided, we can build a lookout. And uh, any of you who have been on Three Fingers are just looking at Three Fingers. That seems impossible. But uh, back then, uh, gentlemen like Harold Ingalls um, were unfamiliar with the term impossible. <laughs> and uh, over the next three years, they, uh, they built that cabin. They blasted out that trail. And... Uh, Yes, the la yeah, they blasted the top 15 feet. I think that the, t the South Peak used to be the tallest of the Three Fingers, uh, but the Forest Service made quick work of that. And <laughs> it's now the second. <laughs> yeah, so I've kind of talked a little bit about the people that were part of actually building the lookout because there's some good stories in there. Um, I can remember you talking about, I forget the guy's full name, Ed. Ed Town. Yeah, yeah. What was he doing? He was the first guy I interviewed uh, when I found out he was living in Snohomish. Uh, and he was uh, lived in Darrington, and I think he had a brother. Uh, and, and a lot of, a number of young men uh, would, do, would work for the Forest Service seasonally, building trails, fighting fires, doing that sort of thing. And uh, so he was part of the crew that uh, ferried materials via mule trains higher and higher onto the mountain until they got just below the summit. And then they built a winch system from a lower satellite knob to the summit, and then they would winch the materials uh, up to the south summit after they had blown off the top 15 to 20 feet. And all along the way, they were um, blowing out, you know, rock to create this trail. Any of you who have gone up Three Fingers, especially above Tin Can Gap, it's one of the most spectacular trails in, in the Cascade Range. I mean, it just walks, takes you along this ridge, and, and you can see where they blasted out this rock. It was a monumental undertaking. Um, as Harold told me, he said, uh, usually it cost us $100 a mile build trail back then. Well, this was much more expensive. It was $300 uh, a mile. I mean, given today's, I mean, how many millions of dollars did it take to rebuild the trail up uh, Pilchuck? At least a couple <laughs> million. So, um, but anyway, and Ed Town was one of those gentlemen, and he was working the winch on top, and every time he did this, it sent him out over the precipice and it scared the hell out of him. And at one point, you know, he said, you know, I never hired out to be no eagle. You know, he, <laughs> but uh, it took one summer to uh, create the, build the trail, and I, I think another summer uh, to build the lookout, which they found out uh, was too wide. It hung out over the edge because in the interim they had changed the specs for the Forest Service lookouts and so it was it hung out over the edge and they had to uh, do a little 
improvising to make sure it, it worked. And then it, it was ready in 1932, and I think it was first manned in 1933. So if somebody's read the book lately, you step in and correct me. <laughs> you just said you finished it last night. I know. Um, so ha has anybody been to the top of Three Fingers? I would imagine there's a few. Okay, no. so yeah. Um, and if any of you can imagine kind of that, uh, the area, didn't you say there was like a camp? So when they were building this, right, they, the, the mules, that, uh, was a mule or, or horseback or whatever got, got the, the uh, right. stuff up there. Then they, they had like a camp up there too, right? Yeah. And, um, what, what was the name? Stove camp. And when Jim and I first tried this in 1969, uh, well, Jim wasn't. I, I told he, he was ready to step across to the cabin, and I, I'm looking up at, at twilight, and I said, I don't like it. I don't like it. Come back, Jim. Oh, he was pissed off. But, <laughs> and then, but we, we found this beautiful stove camp with a, a, a nice little stream that uh, became a waterfall, and we had a perfect, perfectly lovely night uh, out there. But that was the last, well, one of the last times we ever camped any place other than the cabin. Well, let's move on a little bit to some of the people that you were able to interview uh, that manned some of the lookouts up there. Um, the first lookout was this short little fellow. Uh, that's probably, he was a Republican. <laughs> uh, Harold Weiss, and I interviewed him. Um, he lived in Everett, and uh, when he had bought, uh, either built his house or purchased it, he built a little cupola on the top so that he could always look out and see Pilchuck and Three Fingers from, the, from his little lookout cupola. He was a very sprightly, energetic gentleman when I met him. Um, he was the sort of fella, because he was short, was continually having to prove himself. And, and uh, he worked really hard to prove himself to Harold Ingalls. And so Harold was impressed enough that he became the first lookout up there. Uh, I, it was next manned by two, three, Bob Craig. Bob Craig, I never uh, met him. Uh, I talked to him on the phone. He was very articulate. He wrote me wonderful letters uh, and pretty much wrote his chapter for me. That was nice of him, um, <laughs> telling his story. Uh, but he had wonderful uh, summers up there. Um, he... <laughs> He, uh, one year he was on Mount Higgins, or I think, yes, and uh, when Harland East was, Eastwood was on top, and he was honeymooning with his wife, and she had high-powered binoculars, and she could see to Higgins, and <laughs> she could see that uh, Bob Craig was uh, sunbathing nude, and, <laughs> and Harlan got on the phone and said, young man, have you no decency, and, and you could, they could see him looking around. <laughs> Where is I don't remember that part of the book. <laughs> I didn't either until I, I read it the other day. Um, and, and Bob was, uh, you know, he explored the mountain. He was young and energetic. Um, and then it, it, for one beautiful summer, it was the home for Harold Ingalls, and, uh, not Harold Ingalls, but Harland Eastwood, and his uh, wife, Catherine, uh, they spent their honeymoon on Three Fingers. Um, Harland had lost his arm when at age 17, and the doctor had said, 
You can be an invalid or you can make something of your life. And Har uh, Harlan decided he was going to make something of his life. And uh, he became, uh, he held the high school high hurdles record in San Francisco uh, until 1950. Uh, he was the quarterback on the University of San Francisco uh, football team. Uh, he was uh, mountain rescue. He participated in the uh, search for the body of Delmore Fadden on Mount Rainier and spent weeks up there. Uh, he was on ski patrol. Uh, he was good buddies with Eddie Bauer. He and he was an amazing big man. Uh, when I went to interview him uh, on the San Juan Islands at the time, he showed me the eight millimeter films that he and his wife had taken. And it, I'll never forget him skiing on big wooden skis down from Tin Can Gap, carrying an 80 pound bale of telephone wire and, and executing these wonderful turns. Uh, and I was uh, just astounded. He said, well, it was a little difficult because every time I turned, the bale would shift. And, but it, it didn't seem to bother him at all. Um, his wife that summer um, wrote an article, or the next summer, for the Saturday Evening Post. And that was uh, one of the earliest uh, impetuses for my book as well, when I read about their wonderful summer up there. When I met Harland, he had, um, Catherine had died a few years ago, um, and, but Harlan had a new girlfriend named Esther who he, he would <laughs> marry, but that night Harry Tucker and I were visiting him and I, he said, you know, I've uh, got a lady friend named Esther. And I said, oh, great. And he said, yep, last week I invited her over and told her to bring her toothbrush. <laughs> Harlan, Harlan was, uh, he was irascible, uh, but he was also beguiling uh, and loved a double entendre. Oh, that's great. And then finally there was Harry Tucker. And Harry, I, I became wonderful friends with uh, Harry and his wonderful wife, Pat, and their daughter, Pat. Uh, and Harry... Tucker, the Tucker clan, grew up in, uh, in Tuckerville, which is just down the road uh, in, at the uh, foot of Mount Whitehorse. And they, were, they had to have been the craziest bunch of young guys. I mean, they, they ranged all over these hills. And uh, for three years, Harry was the lookout on Three Fingers, and he explored every, every nook and cranny. If you've ever been up to... Three fingers. You may have seen a skull and crossbones painted on the edge of a cliff, just across the way, and it looks like it's impossible to get to. And somehow Harry lowered himself down and painted the skull and crossbones. He also did he write something? Safety first. Yeah, <laughs> I knew there was a punchline there. <laughs> oh no. And then after uh, Harry uh, went off to war. His mother uh, brought the younger Tucker kids up to Goat Flats, uh, and Harold Ingalls told the, the uh, regional office that 
they were in the cabin, but he said, I don't want you to go to the cabin. I know those young boys. Somebody's going to fall off. So they stayed at Goat Flats, and, th and they took the Butch Osborne firefinder uh, up on a, put it on a knoll, and they spent the summer there. Uh, and one day, I think it was Tommy, who was eight years old, got bored. He, he says, I'm going home. And off he went, down to Tupso Pass, down to uh, Boulder Creek and home and, and spent a couple of days by himself at the house until he got bored again. Then he came back up. Wow. And his mother was evidently fine with it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's different times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, they, uh, what was his, the his mother, but they stayed at Goat Flats. That's a, yeah, they didn't go up to the cabin. So while they're up there all summer, you know, let's talk a little bit about how they got their food supply and where'd they poop? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, you know, the, the food would be brought up um, by mule and then either to Goat Flats, maybe to Tupso, I don't know, or maybe a tin can, and then the, the lookout would have to go down and ferry them up, usually several loads. Um, I know that Bob Craig had a huge box of eggs, which he kept throughout the summer, despite the fact that people were almost driven out of the cabin by the smell. He says, <laughs> seemed okay to me. Um, and... <coughs> I, I would imagine they, I, I don't know whether they had resupplies or not, because the lookout very often wouldn't be manned until August, you know, because it was hard to get up there, sometimes middle of July, and then they'd be out of there sometime in September. Um, in terms of relieving themselves, uh, they found a, over the east side, you look over the east side, and if you've, if you've never had vertigo, you'll get it pretty fast. Yes, it drops 1,800 vertical feet over the, uh, what they used to call the back 40. And uh, there's, a, but there's a little notch, and they would scramble down there, probably had a rope attached, and then you would come around a corner, and there was this huge cave. And, 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 uh, and, uh, crack in the rock that just dropped off into the Squire Creek Valley <laughs> and and it was a gorgeous view. I've been down there a couple of times and <laughs> just to look uh, <laughs> and uh, it was pretty spectacular. I know that I, th I think it was Harry Tucker had another one uh, off the north side of the peak because he often would lower himself down and then go up and over the middle and climb the North Peak and come back. And that was all within an amount of time, right? Because they had to, they oh had yeah, to call they out fires. Very often, th it was they had like a couple of hours to do these crazy things because, yes, they had, they had to call in regularly to uh, give updates, just let people know they were alive, I suppose. And then there were uh, times when, uh, you know, there were horrendous electrical storms and and all of the lookouts talked about St. Elmo's fire you know that that you know that, that glowing you know string of light that would race up the wires and around the room and 
um, and you would, you know, you just sent sit up on your stool, which had glass bottoms, and, and just wait for it to end. I know that the last night that Lurleen Simpson was on uh, Mount Pugh, uh, uh, Nels Bruseth uh, had radioed in and said, it looks like we've got a storm coming in. I want you to uh, get ready. We'll be up in the morning. And, and she, just as she signed off, lightning struck the cabin, blew the radio uh, to smithereens, and she went in and sat on her stool all night long after lightning strike and lightning strike struck and struck again. Um, the next mor And then the next morning when it stopped, it started to snow. But so by morning, there were six or seven inches of snow. And when she walked out to say goodbye for the lookout the last time, she looked up. And the uh, lightning rod, which was about nine feet tall, was about nine inches. Wow, that's that's crazy to think about. Uh, well, let's let's talk a little bit about kind of who, where where did uh, you because you have another book, Cascade Voices. Cascade Voices. So you have a ton of people in there, and I know that that there's an era of books that that you kind of think everybody should. Maybe kind of because really realistically, everybody in your book yeah. could have had their own story. Oh, for sure. I haven't even talked about the Badal sisters, you know, uh, Harry Badal's little sisters. And if some of you who've lived here long enough knew them, they were amazing women in their own right. Uh, I mean, they grew up uh, up in Badal, and I, 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 in fact, if you ever get a chance, it's a it's a pricey book. And maybe you've seen it before. It's two voices, and it's their story, uh, and and the pictures. Wait, it's more expensive than your book? Just a little. <laughs> but uh, I find it just enchanting their stories of growing up uh, in the wilderness, uh, and and you get a a really good sense of Darrington in the 19s and 20s, uh, and uh, and they would go. Their mother would say, let's go pick, pick blueberries. And the next thing you know, they're climbing Mount Pew. Uh, and, you know, these women were trappers. They were guides um, and, uh, and historians. They were, I, I, had, I was fortunate to have dinner with them one night um, at Harold's place. And I was just sort of, they're wonderful stories. And the, the, the kidding between the three of them Obviously, they had great affection, and Anna Mae was there, and Harold's wife. And uh, afterwards, I, you know, Harold must have seen my face. He said, "I told you that was going to be something else." I said, "Oh, okay, it was great. What a, what a, what an opportunity for me to make connections with the early history of this area." I mean, I was really fortunate because within less than ten years of the book's publication, most of these people were dead, you know, and I just, it, it was serendipitous and, and blind luck that I got a chance to get to know them. In those 10 years or, or less or more, uh, did you keep in touch with any of these folks? Because, I mean, man, to be able to sit in those rooms and hear those stories is so cool. I, um, I would um, continue to come up um, to see Harold. Uh, and <laughs> when my wife Carol and I were newly married, we came out and 
with an, a couple of other friends, we decided to hike up Green Mountain, and, and we invited Harold along. And as we got in, up to the little pond just below the, the summit, uh, Harold looked up and said, there's a bear. And I turned to say, Carol, a bear? And she had, at, in, with lightning speed, raced to Harold's side and was practically hugging me. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I know my place. <laughs> and so uh, I had opportunities. Uh, and when Harold got cancer, I thought Harold would live to be 120. I mean, he was such an incredible specimen and such a wonderful gentleman uh, that when I found out that he had cancer, I was, I was really worried. And I remember uh, taking a drenching hike to the ice caves with a friend and, there and my oldest daughter, who was three, and uh, his son, who was four. And along the way, I said, would you like to meet Harold Ingalls, we stopped in, and he was just so gracious. And I, you know, he said, "Yeah, I've got cancer, but I don't hike as much. I've taken up mountain biking." And so, <laughs> and uh, that spring, he died. And um, a man, a, a gentleman by the name of I think it was Wayne Sizemore, who'd lived next door, and arranged for us to climb the mountain and. Uh, spread his ashes and my father uh, went along that on that trip and my dad who died last year at age 96 I have his ashes and uh, that stupid road will never be built but I'll <laughs> get up there somehow and and he and Harold will have some uh, fun times uh, that'd be that'd be mean a lot and then I did I when Carol and I were living in Helena Montana Harland and Esther, now married, uh, would draw. They came by twice, and they were so <laughs> much fun. Like I said, uh, Harland was quite ribald, uh, but he was also uh, very enchanting when he wanted to be. And we had some wonderful visits with them. Um, but he also he he w he was volatile. Uh, and uh, after we had been, uh, after I'd moved back here, uh, he got mad at me for something. I'm probably, he had good reason to. Um, and I didn't hear from him for a while. And um, when I call, I wrote Esther, how are you doing? And, and she said he died the year before. And I felt, I was really sad that I hadn't had a chance to be a part of, uh, you know, his passing, but, um, and other than that, I, I just had uh, opportunities to meet some of these people for one time, one glorious time. Yeah, what about, uh, you kind of talked a little bit in the book about some of the lookouts that didn't work out. Do you remember any of those stories? Well, nobody on three fingers. I mean, you had to be, I think, you couldn't just take a chance on somebody on three fingers. But I know that there, there were stories of lookouts. Uh, in fact, Her uh, this Harold in the book tells about one day listening to the radio um, up north in the, um, up in, in the Skagit, uh, uh, Whatcom area, and, and there was a, 
one lookout who just all day long kept saying, uh, I think he was on desolation, desolation to whatever mountain. And then he just over and over. No answer. No, no he just kept repeating it. Uh, and then there was a, a, a woman on her first day who said, the, there's, there's lightning up here. And they said, well, you do this, do this. And, and I guess the, the next morning she says, I'm coming down. I'm co and they said, oh, it'll get me. No, I'm coming down. And then there was another, uh, hair <laughs> he, uh, another lookout was saying, there's a bear on my deck. What do I do? <laughs> well, close the door. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I think there were those sorts of stories. Uh, but the uh, lookouts on three fingers were really competent. And, uh, or they just learned not to tell those stories to anyone. Yes, when he was the lookout, that's the story. And as soon as he would sign off, he would hightail it down the mountain into Darrington, woo his girlfriend, and then head right back up so he <laughs> was there the next morning. I mean, which is astounding. Who was that? Uh, Nels Brusev, who's another legend. I, I, I missed the opportunity uh, to meet him. I do have one of his paintings. It, this, he was on Mount Pew, not Three Fingers, right? Um, actually, you know, there are some, some good questions that have been yelled out. Does anybody else have any questions that they're, they're just burning to ask? <laughs> Joan Not had a good a one there. of a personal nature, but. So were there any fires spotted from, from Three Fingers? Not that I remember them talking about. Not, nothing that, uh, in fact, um, at least a couple of the lookouts said that Three Fingers uh, often was, you know, above the clouds. And so uh, it wasn't as effective uh, a lookout as it could have been because often the valleys where fires might start uh, were enshrouded in clouds. So, but I never heard of, uh, they didn't, I don't remember them talking about any big fire that they ever spotted or had to go fight. I'm sure they had, uh, it was kind of, it's kind of interesting when you think about the layout because in the in the, the forefront looking, you've got Pilchuck, Three Fingers, and Mount Higgins. And it's like <laughs> well, the Three Fingers is kind of right in the middle there, kind of seeing some of the same things maybe. Yeah. One thing you wanted me to ask uh, was to talk about some of the voices that have been written, some of the stories. Uh, kind of wh who would you who would you recommend that people other than your book have well, on their bookshelves? Well, at I home? Would, yeah, I was thinking, you know, what are some essential reads? Um, for people who love the mountains and, uh, you know, and narratives perhaps. Uh, and I, I just started thinking about it. Uh, not, not guides so much because there are wonderful guides, but, you know, those books. Not, not Joan's book. <laughs> that's a nice, that's a nice book. Uh, it's a great book. But, uh, but, but books that tell stories, that give us a sense of the history. Andy Holland's book, he was an old lookout, Switchbacks, and I got a chance um, to, to hear him speak, and he had wonderful stories, and they're all, you know, he worked up here and was a lookout all around this district. It's a nice, you know, nice. Has some stories about Miner's Ridge and yeah. Sock Mountain and things. And then uh, Jim gave me this book. I, I, 
I'm giving it back. I'm, I didn't mean to keep it so long. Um, and by Russ Hanby, who worked up here for many years. It's called Walking on Trees. I really enjoyed this. And there again, stories about um, the mountains, the lookouts, fighting fires. Inter it's a, it's a and he has a great story about uh, before uh, Kennedy Hot Springs became history, they had a huge splooge of something of water that that uh, trapped people up there, and and how he uh, had to negotiate that. It's a. I really enjoyed reading this. Now Jim might loan it to somebody if they want. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, I I always recommend Fred Becky's Challenge of the North Cascades, just because you get a sense of what it was like to go and, you know until the 1950s, so many of these peaks weren't climbed, unless you were Fred Becky, uh, and uh, who was probably the most prolific climber in the history of the world, uh, and also a strange, strange, sometimes misanthropic uh, human being, but never boring. And, and I, this is, I fell in love with this book uh, when I first read it, um, and even after I fell out of love with Fred Becky, Another book that I've always loved <laughs> is uh, D. Molinar's uh, The Challenge of Rainier, which is the history of Rainier, and it, great stories, epic stories. Um, and Gary, who, Gary Rose, who figures semi-prominently in this book, he, if you go to the index, Rose, Gary, shows up quite a bit. Um, and he told me that D. Molinar is still alive at age 100, uh, living in Burlington. By a wonderful, wonderful, genial um, human being who did some of the, did a lot of mapping. He did a lot of illustrations. Um, but this is, th if you want to know about Rainier, this is it. And then uh, I've always loved this book, The North Cascades. Pictures, black and white pictures that Tom Miller took, and the text is by Harvey Manning, maps by D. Molinar. And th this book was written uh, to promote uh, the uh, Wilderness uh, Act of 1964, which gave us the Glacier Peak Wilderness and several other wilderness areas, and the National Park, for that matter. Um, these are spectacular black, black and white photos. And Harvey Manning. Um, if I had to recommend one guidebook, it would be 100 Hikes, just because Harvey uh, was just a fine writer and funny, uh, acerbic, um, and uh, always managed to inject humor uh, into even the most serious of subjects. But these are some of the books that I really love. Um, and I know you all have some favorites as well. But um, it's nice to be able to go into areas and then know a little something about it afterwards. That's one of the other reasons I did Three Fingers. I wanted to know more about it. That's cool. Well, it, it's been over 30 years now, since about 32 years since the book came out. 37. No, wait. 30, yeah. You're, no, it's thir thir 32. 30, 30, thank you. Yeah. I, I uh, teach English, not math. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So what? Uh, kind of talk a little bit about what's happened since then. Oh, you know, because there was a, you know, because with the logging, that that brought the lo the the roads so close, and then now yeah. it's a little far away. Yeah. Well, 
uh, in the 32 years since then, I've slowed down a lot, uh, my hip. Uh, but <laughs> but people have continued uh, to lavish care on three fingers. Um, the in 1986, just, uh, just before this book was published, Pat Tucker and her husband, Bruce Whitey, spent uh, a month on the, uh, in the cabin building a new roof, you know, shoring up things all over, you know, and just giving it a new coat of paint. The Everett Mountaineers ferried stuff uh, up to the cabin. Uh, Jim and his father, uh, uh, sawed trees so that he could bring mules up at least to Goat Flats and from there the mountaineers took them up there. Uh, and so it seemed like the cabin would last for another generation or longer. It looked great. But, you know, it's precarious, precariously perched and it, it, it catches every front that comes through. Um, and so it's needed help. And there, there are a group of people uh, over the last 10, 15 years who have done some major reworking on the cabin. Although uh, I think it was last year that I saw a picture and either the window was, the window shade, uh, not shade, the shutters, the shutter was up or it was gone. And so, I know that in 1979, when the shutters were left off, windows were broken and it filled with snow, and there were these wonderful collections of old magazines. Gary was reminding me of a, an old magazine that uh, the, co uh, the cover was the, the finishing of the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, uh, or, and you'd see these ads in uh, Look Magazine or Collier's where Doctors say smoking is good for you, you know, Chesterfields, <laughs> 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 and, you know, uh, a real wonderful window into the past, and they were uh, waterlogged and essentially destroyed. So I, I don't know, I haven't heard if anybody's been up there to check it out. It's much harder now with the road out. You know. Oh, since the, since the shutter picture, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what about... After 30 years of writing the book, I asked you this two years ago. Um, yeah. <coughs> what about kind of re-releasing the book for a local crowd that, that's into it and maybe with an update? Well, it's interesting because unbeknownst to me, uh, after the second run uh, sold out, the book became a collectible. Uh, I, and, and I thought, wow, maybe I should have – no, I don't know. I, it, it, you, you check and you sometimes you see these really ridiculous prices and occasionally people pay it. I don't know why. Um, but I thought, uh, I think I'm ready. Um, I want to add uh, three chapters to the book. And so I think I'm going to do that if Rudy will help me figure out how you do that in the digital yeah. age. Uh, and so... Um, yeah, I, I'd like to do that. I, I think it um, nowadays uh, you can you can do it without having to you know to search out and and, and find a, a publisher who'll be willing to foot the bill. But I think I can do it. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, give a new life to three fingers. Jim. 
Has anybody been to Three Fingers at all last in the last summer? In the last year? Yeah, I think I think it was two years ago. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I know uh, it's been on my mind to get back up there. I, I I went when the road was still open myself and was able to just go up in one day and back. And um, it's not as easy to do now with the road be, or the trail being blocked with the bridge. Uh, it wasn't easy back then either, to be honest with you. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think about some of these stories of these guys coming up and over uh, in one day. But uh, yeah, um, it sounds like sounds like Mac needs to get back up there too. I I do I do. Um, when I was uh, courting my wife, um, and, and I was thinking seriously, how am I going to propose? Um, one day, just out of the blue, she said, if you think you're going to take me up three fingers and propose on that mountain, well, you've got another thing coming. Well, the good news was she was <laughs> thinking the same thing I was thinking. <laughs> the bad news was I didn't have a plan B. So, I <laughs> yeah, she uh, read me pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, hey, I just want to say thanks so much for, for coming out and supporting uh, Darrington Outdoor Club. And, Mac, thanks for your time. Oh, it was a pleasure. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mac. The artist that night was Wes Jones, played a bunch of music for us. Now we're going to close out with one of his songs that uh, I recorded.
Been plowing this road far too long to go. 